Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It's Welcome to another Fright Fest uh, preview podcast from BritFlix.com. I'm talking to Josh Johnson, the director of Rewind This. Hello, Josh. Hello. And how are you today? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Good man, good man. Um, well, your, your film is a documentary. Do you want to do a bit of an intro for the listener as to what how you would describe that documentary? Yeah, it's a documentary about the home video revolution and the impact that videotape had both on you know society and the film industry. And the story is told through uh, filmmakers and industry people that were there at the time, and also you know collectors of videotapes today, and sort of everything in between. So it aims to be kind of a comprehensive look at that whole story, from you know workout tapes to the early video boom to uh, the present-day relevance of archiving videotapes because of all of the material that's only available that way. So it's kind of a, a love letter to uh, this concept of home video that really changed how we experience movies. And what, what, what inspired you to, to sort of track that subject? Because that, that was the fascinating things about it, is that as well as being about the video cassette, it's the whole kind of social, cultural impact that's sort of even as fascinating as the, the physical object itself. Well, it's really two things. You know, I am a child of the home video generation. So for me, you know, having access to so many films uh, was so important to me as a child. It really shaped the person that I am. And because of the low cost of the technology, I was also able to start uh, making short films and uh, projects on videotape when I was seven years old. So I think a lot of filmmakers have that story of, you know, getting the Super 8 camera or something like that. But, you know, my parents would never have known to have purchased one of those. I'm not sure they could have afforded it. And it would have also been difficult to process the film and do all these things. But because of home video, I was able to kind of teach myself with this low cost and simple technology. So that combination of having access to films and being able to take that passion and transfer it onto making them was something that uh, completely formed the person that I am today. So I feel like I owe a lot to uh, the home video revolution in a lot of ways. So it was really exciting to tell that story on film. And then on top of that, uh, myself and a lot of friends uh, that I have were collecting these tapes still. Uh, this was several years ago before we started, but it was still several years after they had stopped making them. And the reason for that is because there were thousands and thousands of films that were released that way that have never been released any other way. So it was kind of this last stop for a lot of film history. So just as people that were interested and passionate about movies, it was really exciting to find these things that had slipped through the cracks. So I thought since there was a historical part of it to tell and also a contemporary relevance, that seemed like more than enough material to shape this into a feature film. Yeah, I mean, without, without wishing to be too grand, it's sort of, it's, because um, I hadn't really figured on the kind of archive element, the idea that the video was the last archive of some films that never were made for cinema and never would get to 
graduate to, you know, DVD and MP4 and Blu-ray or whatever. So the idea that these are the last record of a film is is quite it's quite a fascinating thing. I mean, it's a it, it, it mirrors vinyl, doesn't it? In some senses, that there was some stuff that just got left behind in the revolution to go digital, and even in some senses, it reflects on um, what's he called. Um, People like Alan Lomax with his blues archive, you know, the way he wanted to make sure he recorded this stuff so that these songs never got forgot. So that was a big element that surprised me watching it, that actually the VHS was was the place where these films live and only live. Yeah, and you know, you're somebody that obviously is very passionate about film, and it's something that hadn't occurred to you, and that was a big motivating force behind making the film, because this was uh, something that nobody seemed to be talking about, and that a lot of people, even in the film community, didn't seem to be aware of, this portion of our film history that was at risk of being lost. So uh, while there were a number of reasons to make the film, like one of the real driving forces was that, to make sure that we could raise awareness and point out all of these uh, amazing artifacts that we were at risk of losing. Yeah, cause, I mean, because oh, the obvious stuff, familiar about the kind of the the aerobic stuff and the the the, the prevalence of porn, um, but <clears throat> but no, that 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 element was a big surprise. Can I ask you? I mean, you mentioned about Super Eight. Who was the, who was the person in in the film who actually? I think he sort of says that the sort of leap between Super Eight and and the video cassette was like a blip, and we actually just picking up your story, saying that you were using the vi- the video cassette as a as a means of making film and and not. Super 8, which was film, film, is it like mini film? Who, who was that guy? Right. That was Adam Agoyan, the yeah. uh, Canadian filmmaker who's, you know, probably best known for The Sweet Hereafter, which was nominated for Academy Awards. But uh, he's sort of Canada's leading art house filmmaker. And okay. a lot of his early films are actually very much focused around video and the ability to document yourself and how that kind of changes how we perceive each other. So uh, we really went to him primarily to talk about those things. And he ended up having a wealth of other topics that he was well-versed in and wanted to talk about. So it was an interesting interview because we really wanted him for very specific reasons and none of that material ended up making it into the film. It was all of these other things we talked about that ended up being relevant to the final product. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm mean, a person, I studied, uh, I, did a, I did a master's in mass communication. So the whole kind of cultural industries is a is a real fascinating element to me. So this, this film was, to me, something about a subject I love because I'm, I am too did the video, the video cassette generation. You know, when you trailed through that whole kind of mom and pop video store stuff, that was, you know, that was my. I mean, twelve years of age, I was watching Cannibal Holocaust. I really shouldn't have been, but the cover was good, and my parents didn't know any better. Um, you know. And you know, I think that's something that really unites uh, a lot of us that are of a certain age. You know. There's several years, you know, as far as a gap between us, like it's probably a 10 to 15 year period that we all kind of fall into. But, you know, I think for a lot of us that are still, you know, in this day and age really passionate about film, this was really our training ground. And this is really what uh, gave us the ability to develop our love of film, even if we didn't live somewhere like a major metropolitan area that had a repertory cinema. You know, the video store was our repertory cinema, and mm. it's what enabled us to uh, discover all of these things that really changed the way we look at movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you for nothing. I know my first film I ever saw, which was Jaws. I know the first thing we ever recorded was Saturday morning kids' TV while I was playing soccer because I just couldn't believe that I could watch it when I got in for my lunch. After playing soccer, I mean that's it's 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 embedded in my mind. <laughs> I don't have the same memory of DVD. 
No, I mean, there's something uh, communal about videotape because uh, you can leave fingerprints on it. Uh, when you watch something over and over, it wears on the tape, it degrades. Mm. You can scratch a disc and then it's kind of damaged in, in that same part when you play it. But there's not that ability to kind of uh, leave a personal touch on your media. And what was the, um, from a, I only asked this because friends of mine have been doing a, a documentary um, about the 60s singer Chris Farlow and they've, God, they've been following him now for nearly four years. Um, so what what were the main sort of challenges pulling this documentary together and, and, and sort of how long has it taken? Well, all in, it took about three years, okay. but it was probably closer to a year's worth of work stretched out across three years because, you know, the main challenge really was uh, we all had day jobs. This was a film made by three people and uh, we didn't have, you know, upfront financing or any kind of support like that. Mm. We sort of did fundraising as we went along. So, I mean, the real challenge was to uh, schedule all of this and kind of keep this machine moving forward, even though, uh, you know, we had 40 hours a week devoted to something else. So that was really the, the biggest challenge, was just finding out a way to do this as a passion project around uh, all of the other requirements that life has. Um, so it took about three years, even okay. though you know we weren't steadily working full time throughout those three years. But I mean, for me, the biggest challenge was just uh, you know finding the time to properly you know devote to this because there were other things that would come up. Um, but the actual making of the film was always enjoyable. Uh, we really didn't struggle to get the interviews that we wanted. Uh, things really did fall into place once we would focus on doing it. So the experience itself was not an ordeal. It was actually really wonderful and uh, enjoyable the entire time. The struggle was just finding the time to do it around these other things that paid the bills. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> um, and was was there pe were you meeting heroes, or were, were that most of the people you met, people you already sort of had regular contact with, and it was just a case of getting them on tape, or was it that part of the trail for you? Well, the initial... Uh, filming that we did was all within Central Texas because the three of us were living in Austin. Okay. And so most of the people we were talking to were our friends, the people that we had access to. Mm. And then once we started expanding beyond that, you know, in some cases we were talking to heroes, in some cases we were talking to people that uh, were being referred to us by other people. Yeah. But everybody was excited to talk about this because it was the subject matter that was important to them. For a lot of the subjects in the film, this period of time and that industry is really what launched their career or established them, or it was you know a time in their lives where they were part of something pioneering. So even people that are reluctant usually to give interviews were excited to be a part of this project. So it was very interesting. You know, even if we were interviewing somebody that we considered to be a filmmaking hero, they were really excited to be on camera talking about it. So there was no tension or no uh, you know hierarchy that we had to negotiate. You know, everybody was excited to be a part mm -hmm. of it. So. Uh, one of the great or parts of this process was making a lot of friends. You know, some of these people that we didn't know and that we were being introduced to, or in some cases, people that we had admired but had never had access to, have now become friends or become people that we've continued to stay involved with. And if there's any benefit to this being a three-year process versus a normal kind of production window, it's really that, that, you know, it did take a while and we were doing it when we had time, but it also allowed these kind of relationships to grow and strengthen. And now that the film is finally coming out, a lot of the people that were involved along the way, um, you know, are, are part of our family, so to speak. There's a there's a there's a there's a, there's a kind of nice tie-in with with um, last year's 
um, Fright Fest, funny enough, they showed an extended cut of Nightbreed, you know, the, the Clive Barker adaptation. Yeah. And all the extra footage was only available via a VHS recording archive of, of, of that of that of those shots. There was no other record of it. And and it was people were almost told at the beginning of watching it, you know, look, this is VHS and some of it is not. But it was the only bit of footage that footage that was left. Nobody else had it was only available on video cassette. And that's ultimately what it comes down to for me is, you know, I want to have access to this material. And mm. if that's the only way I can do it, I'm more than willing to watch it in a somewhat compromised form because the alternative is to never see it at all. So, I mean, for me, you know, I don't, I have a lot of nostalgia for the video store and for that period of time, but I would never choose to watch something on videotape when I have other options available to me. But the reality is that there's so many films that are only available that way, and I would much rather watch them, you know, panned and scanned and at a kind of lower resolution if that's the only way I'm going to be able to see that. Well, I mean, in, in, I mean, thinking of the Fright Fest audience that's sort of my generation, you you only could see most horror films that were of any... I mean, and we're talking Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Spit in Your Grave and stuff, through bootleg video. You, They were just banned. <laughs> Simple as that. In the in the eighties and early nineties, it was a straight you know. So VHS was a really you know you you it was your way of getting it, and if it was a low resolution, didn't matter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I mean that existed in the states to a lesser degree. You know that we didn't have the same uh, you know situation with the video nasties and things being banned or scarce, but there were a lot of times where deals would be struck where something would be available elsewhere, and that there was no uh, distributor in the states. So the only way you would see certain films from other parts of the world would be to import them on a bootleg videotape. And that also created this whole concept of fan subbing, you know, which I think really probably anime was the thing that launched that. Yeah, where that was a fans would put subtitles. So that again, sorry, with subtitles, I don't know, I told you that was my fault. Yeah, I mean, I think anime really launched this concept of, you know, fan subs, you know, fans that would subtitle these films so that, you know, if there was something that was only available in Japan, uh, you could export the tape with custom-made subtitles, and, and that way people in other parts of the world were able to experience it. Yeah, yes, I mean, again, not, not, not a thought of. And also that, that challenge to people trying to keep supply in their control, and in fact the, the consumer was demanding something and did something about it, which obviously the internet made it was even bigger once that came along. Um, Move, moving on, um, what, I mean, the big thing about, and certainly what the impression I got when, certainly when you're talking about sort of films that are now only available on video cassette, would have been that kind of burgeoning sort of horror sci-fi action that that came around at the birth of home entertainment. Um, what, what, why do you think that was such a good bedfellow for home entertainment that that, that that cinema didn't wasn't interested in? I think what the independents realized once the video boom began is that the most important thing for them, beyond even producing a good film, was to produce a good package. So if the artwork was uh, you know, salacious enough, or if it was enticing enough, that people would rent that, and that that was a way to directly compete with major films. And what they couldn't afford would be you know, major movie stars and things like that. But if they had a great concept, and they were able to communicate what that concept was via really evocative art, that that would work. 
And the thing about, you know, action films or sci-fi or horror is that, you know, they have explosive elements. They have, you know, shocking gore or they have strange creatures or fantastic concepts or they have, you know, incredible stunts. Uh, they have machine gun fire and ninjas. <laughs> they have these things that really work as, you know, a vibrant image. It's very difficult to sell a drama in that way. And so, you know, a lot of those types of films you would see were sold in a traditional sense. They were sold based on the stars that were in them or the acclaim that they had received. But the independents were really capitalizing on, you know, selling a product that ultimately they probably couldn't even deliver. But, you know, it, they would, you know, produce low-budget action and sci-fi and horror films that had a few exploitable elements, and then they would exploit those to the maximum degree. And so you had a glut of this stuff. It really flooded the market. And because a lot of times the product was considered inferior or wasn't really uh, appreciated by the mainstream, there's not been any re reason to transfer that to newer formats. You know, there wouldn't be any financial uh, or business motivation to do that. But for a lot of people that grew up in the time, that material is very beloved. So mm. now you know, videotape is the only way to see those things. But I mean, I think the reason it was such a big part of the industry is it's because it was a way for people that didn't have a lot of funds to produce things that could directly compete because they didn't need any of the things that were so expensive. They really just needed a high concept and a great piece of art and that would work. And do you, I mean, it, with, with the genre fan, it's, um, um, it sounds like there's, there's this one generic genre fan, but I don't mean it that way. But the, um, do you think it's part, part of tolerating poor product or the search for that, great thing that's outside the mainstream because obviously there was lots of gems within that kind of glut of product that came out during the home entertainment boom wasn't there yeah absolutely i mean i think what people tend to do is look at a group of films that all uh, on the outside seem to be more or less the same you know it, whether it's you know ninja movies you know they, they see any movie with ninja in the title or that has a ninja on the cover and they feel like they know what that is but I mean the reality is that there's so many different artists working within all of those films that they are going to be different and some are going to be better than others so there's a tendency to kind of dismiss things wholesale without actually watching each individual title that is represented so what you have is this huge glut of product most of which is probably not great, but some of which is actually pretty incredible, sometimes accidentally incredible. Mm. And there's an awareness only within, you know, this small group of fans that were watching all of these that were coming out. They weren't dismissing. They were wanting to experience, you know, everything that was available to them. And that's why, you know, any kind of archival effort that exists now is purely because of fans, because they're the only people that actually recognize what the gems are uh, that were coming out. And certainly, I mean, uh, we try to use some examples in the film, but, you know, there are some things like Deadly Prey, for example, which is a direct-to-video action movie made by Action International Pictures starring Ted Pryor. Mm. And that film is completely unlike any other film that's ever been made. And just as a cultural artifact, it's so important for people to see, but it's not something that's probably ever going to have any kind of mainstream recognition. It's just not a film that people know about. So it really takes this archival effort or hopefully, you know, documentaries like this to kind of raise awareness for some of these things that slipped between the cracks. Yeah. yeah I mean, um, cause I, a lot of, some of the imagery I'd seen was, uh, it, I, I don't never seen on video gazette, but I'd see, uh, do you ever, do you ever follow, um, cinema snob at all? Who does his sort of video reviews? I do. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm trying to remember the name, but he has a thing called like, you know, tales from the big box or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. 
Well, his, his whole side, I mean, the, the, certainly the ninja stuff that I saw the clips in within your documentary where I saw faces from from um, from work that he sort of critiqued. And it's usually he critiques it for being trash cinema, but also there's a, the enthusiasm and love for it at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I have a huge love for trash culture because in my mind, uh, it takes the passage of time to properly evaluate the importance or the significance of something. And things that were considered trash culture in the early days of cinema are in some cases now considered to be major classics. And I see no reason to think that this sort of material couldn't achieve that same level of recognition over time. And uh, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand right now just because we haven't had enough time to kind of evaluate what it might mean for us. So I think all of this stuff is worthy of preservation because it's not now that we're going to be able to identify uh, the significance of it from a cultural or artistic perspective. I think it's going to be down the road that we're able to do that. So to my mind, all of this stuff is worthy of preservation. All of it's worthy of consideration because it's all made by specific people in a particular place in a particular time with the intention of entertaining people. And I think, you know, really 50 years from now, the video boom is going to be a huge topic of academic discussion. And I think we're going to look at a lot of these films in a completely different way. Oh, no, well, that, I, I mean, that was certainly something com, coming out loud and clear from your documentary, and uh, certainly one of the main things I applaud you for, really, is that it isn't just about, you know, some films and some daft action and some blood and some this and some that. It's actually, we changed, our viewing habits changed, our love for things that we couldn't get our hands on grew, <laughs> you know, and that's that's a that's a powerful thing to happen because we, we take it for granted now with Netflix and Yulu, the idea of programming our own watching habits, but... The video cassette was that first thing. Yeah, I think it's the most significant uh, change or revolution in cinema since the birth of the format. You know, anything else that you look at, whether it's you know moving to color or moving to sound, or you know changes in you know uh, exhibition and projection, those are all kind of changes to how the uh, medium is presented or you know how the stories are told, etc. But with home video, it actually changed the way we absorb and consume the entertainment. The way that we now feel an ownership and uh, an entitlement uh, over how we consume our content, that's something that only happened because of video. And you know, any future development you see completely takes that into account. So I think it's maybe the most significant revolution that happened in movies you know, since the birth of the medium. I concur. <laughs> <laughs> um, now you're going to be showing I think you've shown a couple of times aren't you on the Fright Fest schedule this year you've got a UK premiere and then you've got a repeat showing later on in the festival yeah it's uh, showing Saturday um, the, the first weekend of the festival and then it also shows again that following Monday both times in the same theatre um, I think uh, probably uh, the best thing to do if you don't have a badge or a pass would be to uh, buy tickets uh, in advance now. They're already online uh, via uh, the Fright Fest site. You can follow the link. Uh, I don't know what the ticket sales are, are doing, but my impression is that uh, it's a smaller house and that uh, if you want to get in, that you should probably get tickets in advance. Yeah, it's, it's about two fifty, three hundred in 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 the smaller one. So it's still a you know it's a decent sized room, but it's it's not the fifteen hundred seat main screen. Um, right. So how I mean, has it played at genre festivals already, or is, uh, and how, and how has it been received? It premiered at South by Southwest, which okay. is just sort of a, a a broader film festival. It doesn't focus specifically on genre films, but it was very well received there. 
And then it's kind of gone on to play a, a range of different places. It played the Independent Film Festival Boston, which is another just kind of prestigious uh, uh, top tier film festival. And then it's also started to expand to other things. Uh, I showed it uh, at PFAN in South Korea a few weeks ago, which okay. is uh, a genre film festival in South Korea. And we had a couple great screenings this past week at Fantasia in Montreal. So it's kind of been playing a, a mixture of different types of uh, venues, uh, both genre film festivals and non genre film festivals. And thus far, the response has been great everywhere it's played. So I'm really optimistic that that's going to continue. But particularly, I'm really excited to hear the reactions coming out of the UK screening because I think that video is still at the forefront of people's mind in the UK in a way that it's not everywhere else that the film has played so far because of the video nasties and because of this, you know, panic that occurred and all of the news stories. I think, you know, the idea of videotape and its significance and the power of it is something that was in people's minds and on the news a lot more in the UK than it was in other parts of the world. So I actually feel like the UK audience um, in some ways is going to be best prepared for the film. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know how much you obviously had the video nasties '84, and then we had an awful child murder which was linked to child's play, and uh, we had a second panic in the early '90s. So during the the sort of fifteen year window of the video cassette, we had two moral panics that basically put you know genre films in the in the in the limelight. If you, it, this may seem hard to believe, but in the early '90s, they basically said that Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. Uh, Bad Lieutenant, Abel Ferreira's movie, would never be released for home entertainment. Which was like, <laughs> it's just an yeah. insane thought. Yeah, the the whole kind of uh, panic and, you know, censorship and, you know, Video Nasties era is something that we actually did have a segment on in the film, but uh, it was the sort of thing where it, it wasn't quite working within the context of the film, but, you mm. know, ultimately on the DVD and when special features are available, uh, we do have a segment on that that I think people are really going to enjoy because I think we really encapsulated it uh, in a really concise way that uh, is pretty entertaining. Now, for for a, for a bit of fun, to, to finish off here, Josh, um, obviously I'll give you this so you can prepare for a bit, have a think about it. Now, it'd be interesting if, if you've been able to think about, um, when you think of British horror films, who or what springs to mind? Now, there's there's generally horror. You could obviously give me an answer, but is there anything from the from the home entertainment market that springs into mind that that you think Britain is responsible for or is interested in? Well, when I think of you know uh, horror and Britain in the video era, I actually think mostly of films from elsewhere, but that were banned or you know hard to see. So I think of a lot of the Italian films, some of the American kind of genre films that were on the video nasties list and were so difficult to see. In some ways. Uh, when I think about some of those films like Driller Killer, uh, I don't even really think about New York, which is where the film came from. I, I actually kind of tend to think about that video box and, you know, the, the video bands that occurred in the UK. So, I mean, that's something that's really powerful for me. Yeah. But uh, when I think of British horror, you know, in general, I tend to really think of, uh, you know, many, many decades ago. Um, there's a lot of films that I really like. I really like The Wicker Man. I really like uh, kind of a sci-fi horror combo, but you know, the, I like the whole Quatermass series, but particularly Quatermass in the Pit, mm. I think is really uh, powerful and, you know, just it's filled with so many ideas. It almost has too many great ideas for one movie. Um, and then I, I'm not uh, as much of a hammer fan as I think uh, a lot of people are, but there are certain, you know, key titles that I really like, particularly some of the early ones 
the movie The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas, I think, is you know one of the most like effective and haunting films that I've ever seen. I think atmosphere is what uh, the Brits really brought to genre films, especially at that time. Okay. You know, from you know seance on a wet afternoon to The Abominable Snowman, you know, the, all of those things. What's consistent among them is that sense of atmosphere. And then I also really kind of like some of the like late sixties, early seventies sort of psychosexual thrillers that they were making. In particular, there's a movie called Twisted Nerve with Haley Mills. Um, that a lot of people know this bit of the soundtrack, which was used in Kill Bill volume one, but uh, that movie's really great. And the performances are really solid. And it's like one of the best kind of uh, slightly psychotic house guest movies, I think that has ever been made. I so I like a lot of those. So, mostly. Well. I was going to say, Josh, that's one I've not seen, and I'll take that as a recommendation. Now, it's uh, one that passed me by on my my oh, viewing list. Absolutely, it's a nerve. Got to see it. It's definitely on DVD in the UK, uh, so it should be you know pretty accessible to you. And uh, I'd see it as soon as possible. I think you're really, really going to love it. Because what's interesting is that, that, that weirdly, because the the cross culture reference passed me by. There's a there's a relatively famous record label. I'm from Manchester originally, uh, called Twisted Nerve, and I can't imagine that it wasn't named after that film. But I never really made the leap before. <laughs> if you've have you ever heard of the artist uh, Badly Drawn Boy, yes, yeah. Well, his first single was out on Twisted Nerve Records before he before he got on a major label deal. So weirdly, that's uh, you've just squared a circle for me. There, I didn't even know I needed squaring. <coughs> well, look, sir, I've had plenty of your time, and uh, I'm very grateful. Are you coming over to the festival at all? Are you able to come to the screening? I'm not. I won't be there. But uh, yeah, I definitely, you know, have some friends in the UK, and I'm really excited to hear back about the the audience response. And uh, I think it's going to be very good. But uh, I, regardless of whatever the reaction is, I'm really looking forward to hearing about it because I think the UK is a really important audience for this film. Well, if I can get if I can get any first hand reports for you, I'll uh, I'll pass them on for you. Yeah, please do. Thank you. All right. Well, look, well, good luck with the uh, with the film at Fright Fest, and and like I say, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.